Daniel chapter 9 and Jesus. Now, again, last night we were looking at the, uh, the prophecies of Daniel 8, and um, we, we studied from a particular school of thought. In fact, last night we gave a review of Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7. You remember that? And I mentioned to you, I mentioned to you somewhat in passing that, in, in fact, what I was sharing was not new. It was not my own invention. I'm not that smart. <laughs> I am only a Bible student, and, and I've, I've read and I've studied, and I, this I'm sharing as best I can, but many others have come to similar conclusions in Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, right? In fact, I mentioned that the Protestant movement as a whole taught this for hundreds of years. Daniel chapter 2 and Daniel chapter 7, they did. That's what they taught. And they taught it because they were looking at these prophecies through a particular uh, interpretive lens. We call this set of hermeneutics or of interpretive principles, we call this historicism. Now, this doesn't mean that historicism teaches that all Bible prophecies have already been fulfilled. That's not what historicism is at all. What historicism says is you can find yourself in the train of history. You can find the, the, the prophecy being fulfilled, being fulfilled, being fulfilled, being fulfilled, and what do you know you find yourself right in this prophecy, and then you see the future as well. And historicism, one of the great strengths of historicism, which again the, the Protestant Reformation champion, is that it, 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 provides, it provides confidence in interpreting because we can see how the prophecies have been fulfilled, fulfilling, and then we find ourselves and we say, well, if they've been fulfilled accurately using these principles of interpretation, then we can also expect them to continue to be fulfilled accurately. Does that make sense? This is one of the strengths of, of historicism. Now, it's no secret to you, probably by now, that I follow this school of thought called historicism. Let's just go briefly through the three major schools of thought. You want to do that tonight? And I just want you to see sort of an outline, because what we're talking about tonight begins to sort of, well, it encroaches upon another popular view of a different school of thought, Okay. And it's, it's become very popular, even though it's a Johnny-come-lately in the last hundred years or so, it's become very popular. And so we're going to look at these three schools of thought, three primary schools of thought, and we're going to see what historicism, futurism, and preterism are all about, all right? So let's just buckle our seatbelts and let's get started. Historicism says that prophecy covers the entire period from the prophet until the second advent. In other words, each vision that Daniel had began with his time and continued down to the time of the end. Does that make sense? Is that what happened? Yeah, that's what we see in Daniel. Now, it's, it's obvious in Daniel. The problem is when we get to Revelation. <laughs> that's the problem. Because people say, well, we're going to use totally different principles of interpretation. But why? Why? Daniel's here to tell us how to, use, how to, how to interpret prophecy. We have the prophecy, the vision, and then we have the interpretation. We don't have that in Revelation, do we? So the sky's the limit. We can decide this is all out in the future, and who knows how it's going to be fulfilled. But no, actually, Revelation works the same way. The vision begins with the time of John, and it continues down to the time of the end. We have the seven churches, the seven seals, the seven trumpets. Then we have the apocalyptic chapters. The last half of Revelation, basically, is giving vignettes, but it's still a part of the trumpets. And here we have the same principles being, uh, being, uh, being used. There's also a, a common principle in the historicist method is that in symbolic Bible prophecies, symbolic prophecies, you have, when you have a time period, it's not a literal time period, it's a symbolic time period, and a day equals a year. We'll talk more about that this evening. And by the way, when it comes to this principle, virtually all of the scholars agree in Daniel chapter 9. And you're going to see why. You're going to see why. Even if you're a futurist, you believe the day-year principle for Daniel chapter 9. The rub is when we get outside of Daniel chapter 9, the other passages, there's disagreement. So we're going, to, we're going to be agreed on that tonight. The Antichrist, according to historicism, began, had its beginnings or its roots in Paul's day. The way Paul said it, he said the spirit of iniquity, the mystery of iniquity is already at work, but there's something in the way. This is his letter to the Thessalonians. There's something preventing it from arising. The man of sin is going to emerge. That's what he said. And when that something that's preventing it is taken out of the way, then he's going to be revealed. Well, last night we studied, didn't we, what had to be this transition that took place between two phases of Rome, represented by a single horn in Daniel chapter 8. Papal, pagan Rome 
had to be removed in order for the church of Rome to emerge. Now, I want to make it very clear. I have, I, I'm, a, I'm Italian in my background. I have many um, Roman Catholic friends. I believe the Roman Catholic Church, the Church of Rome, Papal Rome, as we sometimes refer to it, was the Christian church, the visible Christian church during the Dark Ages, during the Middle Ages, I should say. There's many, there were many, and there are many of God's faithful people in every denomination. So I'm not here this evening trying to say, well, people in this system or that system are, are bad or they're, they're inferior, nothing like that, friends. But when the Bible gives 10 principles... 10 characteristics in one chapter describing a system, and it, I have to be true to the Word of God. That's all I can do, whether it's politically correct or not, right? I have to. And we're talking about a system here that has, that, that, that has systematically replaced the true worship of God. And so when we, when we talk about these things, I hope you understand. I hope you understand it's no malice or, or, or hard feelings or, or anger at any people or person. It's, we're talking about a system of thought and belief as paganism was baptized and became Christianity. There was a falling away that came from within the church. It was all predicted in the New Testament. Read it for yourself. We'll talk more about that to, uh, as we go on. But the Antichrist had its beginnings in Paul's day, and he goes on in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, and he says it's going to be destroyed when? At the brightness of his coming. That's what the passage says. So it's going to, it, it's already at work, and it's going to be destroyed at the second coming. Now, friends, if we just take that passage, right, the man of sin and, and so forth here in 2 Thessalonians, if we just take that passage, it should tell us one thing. We might be able to find that entity around today, right? And historicism says, in fact, it is here. We can identify it. And every Protestant, Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Wesley, all of the, the early Baptist pioneers, the Anabaptists, every single one of those expositors would agree with us tonight. They were all historicists. And they would say, aha, we understand what system it is that's being identified here. And it exists in the world today. And this is important. Now, if I, were to, if, I were to just, if I were to illustrate this graphically, some people learn better with images, right? Visuals. And so I try. I'm not that way. I read books. Like, that's just the way I learn. Um, but I try because I'm a teacher and I'm supposed to learn how to teach the different learning styles, okay? So, um, historicism says, here's the prophet and um, here's the second coming. This yellow line represents the vision, right? And it continues on unbroken. Guess what? Here we are somewhere in the middle. We can find ourselves. We can find where we are. Where are we in the uh, image of Daniel chapter 2? We're in the feet of iron and mixed with clay, right? Some would even say we're in the very tippy toes, the toenails, right there in the very end, right? Where are we in Daniel chapter 7? Well, we're, 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 maybe that's a trick question. We haven't covered that in a while, have we? We actually have the little horn, we're after the little horn, right? And then after the little horn, it says thrones were set up and the judgment began. I believe we're living in the time of the judgment, which is just before the end of time, okay? Um, when we get to Daniel chapter 8, we haven't really covered it very clearly, so we'll just skip that. What, what, what Pastorism says is the little horn of Daniel chapter 7 can be identified. It's the same man of sin talked about in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Um, that's, that's what historicism teaches, what Protestantism taught, that the little horn, it emerged in those Middle Ages, and it uh, had this 1260-year period of civil and religious power, and um, it's present still in our day. Now, that's historicism in a nutshell, in a graphic scene, okay? Now, let's look to another school of thought, another major school of thought, and that's futurism. Futurism says that prophecy does not cover the entire period until the second coming. There's a gap. There's this limbo land in which there's no real prophetic, the visions don't cover this, and there's going to be events. And depending on which futurist you talk to, it's going to be a little bit different. There's a Hundreds of varieties, probably as many as there are preachers, of futurism. Because this is the problem. And I, I want to be kind here, please. I, I respect my colleagues who adopt this prism at looking at, at prophecy. But I, the problem is that when you take whole prophecies and you place them in the future, the sky's the limit to what principles you're going to use to interpret them. Because you have no track record, no history of how they've been being interpreted or been fulfilled to interpret how they're going to be fulfilled in the future. You understand what I'm saying? And so when you put these in the future and you say, well, they're going to be, they're going to be, they're going to be kick-started. There's going to be a, a renewal of prophecy at a certain event in the future. 
you, you automatically make it so that any expositor can come up with almost any idea of what's going to happen, how it's going to happen, when's it going to happen. And so that's why you see so many different, different ideas um, about prophecy today. In most cases, it does away the day-year principle. Uh, 1,260 days is really 1,260 days, three and a half years, really three and a half years. Um, of course, in Daniel chapter 9, as I mentioned, they still believe with historicists in the uh, day-year principle. Um, by the way, um, during the Middle Ages and before the Protestant Reformation, the uh, futuristic interpretations were virtually non-existent. Now, this is honest to goodness the truth, okay? I'm, I'm not making this up. You might think that I'm just biased against these views of thought, but I just want you to understand these are the facts, and you can research it yourself. You can dig for it yourself. Um, you can go get a graduate degree in church history for yourself, if you like, and come back and show me the evidence. But the fact of the matter is that futurism became a defined way of interpreting Bible prophecy after the Reformation in what we call the Counter-Reformation. Now, why would they want to do that? This is the fact that the futurism was developed by a Jesuit priest by the name of Francisco Ribera. And this was um, his lifetime, 1537 to 1591. He wrote a 500-page commentary in the book of Revelation, and this commentary established the futurist interpretation of Bible prophecy. You won't find, you can read, there may be one church father that tried to say that Daniel's 70 weeks were in the future, but it's like one, okay? For 2,000 years, or for 1,500 years, the church did not use these types of interpretive principles about prophecy. And um, if, we gra if we graphically illustrate this, there's this gap between the prophet and the end of time. We're living in this gap, of course, so we don't know exactly what's going to happen. There's going to be an event or a series of events that kicks off the prophecies again. And the Antichrist under futurism is in the future. Now, do you see why during the Counter-Reformation they would want to have a school of thought of interpretation that would be like futurism? Can you see why? Why? Because now the Antichrist, the man of sin, that we talked about with 10 different characteristics. Remember during the seminar, I told you a story of how I went to Ukraine with a whole crowd, 600 people who were non-Christians, and a few of them probably were Orthodox, but mostly atheists. And I said, I, I want to see if, in fact, my view of prophecy has been skewed by my Protestant background. And I didn't tell them what power interpret, uh, fulfilled these characteristics of Daniel chapter 7. I just read them off. I mean, it was another horn, it was a little horn, and it rose after the breakup of the Roman Empire, it lasted for 1,260 years, and on and on, all 10 characteristics. And with one voice, that entire auditorium of, of individuals educated with an atheistic worldview said the only system that could fulfill that prophecy was the Church of Rome. Friends, it's, it's there, okay? And it was very uncomfortable for the Church of Rome. And so during the Counter-Reformation, they said, how can we develop a teaching of the Bible that takes the pressure off of us as being that, as Martin Luther said, the harlot of Revelation 17, the little horn of Daniel chapter 7, right? Now, those are heavy words, but that, they said them, okay? Not me, and this is what was happening. So Francisco Ribera... He developed this idea of futurism. Let's move on now to preterism. Preterism says that prophecy is fulfilled soon after the prophet gave them or shortly after the first advent. The book of Daniel was, de was developed or was fulfilled, I should say, uh, before the time of Christ. Maybe a little bit afterwards because Jesus does apply one of the prophecies at least. Um, but the book, the book of Revelation, John's, he was writing for his day, and it would have been fulfilled, finally, completely ended by 70 AD in the destruction of Jerusalem. That's preterism. It's already over. It's finished. And um, the Antichrist has already passed. They identified the little horn of Daniel chapter 7 as Antiochus Epiphanes. He was a, a, a Syrian king under the Greek Empire who, um, who was a terrible person, a tyrant, and he... he he tormented, that might be the best way of saying it, beyond persecuted, he tormented the Jews. And one of the things that he did, for example, was he, he sacrificed pigs on the altar in Jerusalem. Now, you know what that did for the, for the, for the Israelite nation. I mean, um, they were livid and insistent, and all, it was an abomination and all of those things. 
But it, friends, it wasn't the abomination. In my view, it wasn't what the prophecy was talking about because we have Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome, and then the little horn arises after Rome. That's too clear. It's too clear in Daniel chapter 7. You can't put him. Well, the preterists do. And a preterism um, has uh, not been around very long either. Now, guess who invented preterism? Um, it was... It was it was a Jesuit, oh, I have it on the screen, duh. Um, it, was, it was developed by the Jesuit Luis de Alcazar, and this was also during the Counter-Reformation. Moses Stewart noted that Alcazar's predest interpretation was of considerable benefit to the Roman Catholic Church during its arguments with Protestants, and preterism has been described in modern eschatological commentary as a Catholic defense against the Protestant historicist view which identified the Roman Catholic Church as the persecuting apostasy. So here's preterism. It basically said the prophecies came down at, well, maybe to the time of Christ, a little bit afterwards. We're, of course, living well beyond that. The Antichrist is finished and past. It's all old news. We don't really have to study Daniel and Revelation. Those are the three main competing worldviews or prophetic interpretive views. And um, the fourth, which is becoming more popular today in, in Christianity, is what we call idealism. And I don't have a slide about this. Um, if I did, I'd just have the prophet and then some flowers around him or something. Idealism, right? Idealism just says, well, we read the prophecies and we find moral lessons, right? What we can learn from them. That's basically idealism. Uh, there's, no real, there's no real timeline or events being fulfilled we can see in history. It's just well, this, this could be or that could be, but the most important thing is we learn these nice moral principles. That's, that's idealism. And these are, these are the, the competing schools of thought within Christianity today. Now, we ask ourselves the question, how can we know which school of thought to adopt? Um, that's an important question, don't you think? I mean, I want to I be in the right camp. If you, I don't want to say camp. That's wrong. I want to be rightly dividing the word of truth. How's that? I want to be rightly dividing the word of truth. I don't want to be interpreting, using principles and a prism to, to look at the scriptures that's the wrong one. Well, I, I argue that the way we define what principles we use is within the Bible itself. Daniel 2 begins teaching us. And Daniel chapter 2 is inescapably historicist. Daniel chapter 7, historicist. Like, it's very hard for me to get past that. Um, and when we see the other Bible writers interpreting the prophecies, Jesus himself interprets Daniel, they also use principles that are more in harmony with the historicist lens through which to interpret the Bible. So last night, we were talking about Daniel. And Daniel has had this vision of, of Medo-Persia and Greece and Rome, and it's two phases, and the question is asked, how long will this last, this, this desolating, um, this uh, continual rebellion and this abominable rebellion? How long is this going to last, this transgression of desolation and this, this uh, daily or tamid? How long will they last to, to allow the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot? Now, I think, if my understanding of this is right, I think what's really being asked is, how long is this, this, uh, this, uh, this whole desolation of, of God's people, of God's sanctuary, by paganism and then apostate Christianity, how long is that going to continue? Now, to answer that question would actually give us the answer to the second coming, right? Because we just mentioned that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the abomination of desolation is done away with at the brightness of His coming. So, what's, what's, the, what's the prophet going to hear? He hears this, this, uh, this, this very simple answer, under 2,300 days, evening and mornings, and then the sanctuary will be cleansed. Daniel, I can't tell you when it's all going to be ended, but I can tell you when God's going to start making it right. When the judgment begins, the sanctuary begins. Remember, Daniel chapter 7, after the little horn, the judgment. Daniel chapter 8, after the little horn, the judgment. The cleansing of the sanctuary. In our series, and we don't have time to go into this again, we, we actually talked about Rosh Hashanah and, and, uh, and how the, the Day of Atonement, the cleansing of the sanctuary, was understood by the Hebrews as a day of judgment. And this is Daniel chapter 7, Daniel chapter 8, paralleled once again. And uh, Daniel is very, very perplexed by this. 
And when, when he gets to the explanation, it doesn't get any better. The last verses of Daniel chapter 8, the Gabriel, the angel who is explaining the visions to Daniel, he says, and the vision of the evenings and mornings which was told is true. Referring back to that 2,300 day part of the vision. It's true. Therefore, he says, seal up the vision, for it refers to many days in the future. Now remember, what did it say in the 2,300 days? Then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now Daniel is horrified at this. That was Daniel's worst nightmare we talked about last night. I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. Afterward, I rose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one understood it. Now one of the problems that Daniel must have had was, how do we understand when this vision begins? He says what's going to happen at the end of the vision, 2,000 300 days, then the sanctuary would be cleansed. But when is the beginning? Was it from the beginning of our exile 70 years ago? Well, 50, 50 years ago, 55 years ago? Was it from the time of the vision right now? Is it from the time of the end of the 70 years that Jeremiah predicted? How do you know when this 2,300 evenings and mornings begins? And we mentioned how Daniel was horrified because the temple in Jerusalem lay in ruins. And uh, the sanctuary was the, was the hope of humanity. It was certainly the focal point of the plan of salvation. It was how the Jews were, were to understand the Messiah that was to come and, and share that understanding with the nations around them. And Daniel is so concerned, would Jerusalem lay in ruins that much longer? Would it be so long? before the Messiah comes. Now, I suppose those first few days after Daniel recovered and he's, he's not understanding, but he's going about it, he, he might have thought, well, maybe, maybe, maybe 2,300 evenings and mornings is literal evenings and mornings. Perhaps after 2,300 literal days, then the sanctuary in Jerusalem is going to be rebuilt and restored. I mean, that would, that would at least be better than 2,300 years, right? I mean, that's just, that's just, just a horrible thought. But as we mentioned, time passed. And Daniel chapter 9 picks up the story 15 years after the vision of Daniel chapter 8. So by now, 2,300 literal days are already gone. He's stuck with the symbolic time. A day equals a year. And after all, Gabriel said, this is for many days. And Daniel is terrified. So where we stopped last night, we were reading in Daniel chapter 9. And remember, what is he studying? Jeremiah. And what is he specifically studying in Jeremiah? The 70-year prophecy. So Daniel's studying the 70-year prophecy. I want you to notice the links between Daniel 8 and 9. Daniel fades at the explanation of time. When we pick up in Daniel chapter 9, Daniel's studying and praying about the time prophecy. Uh, let's, let's look in Daniel chapter 9. Turn with me there. We're going to see this. We have to sew these together if we're going to understand it uh, tonight. Daniel chapter uh, 9 and we're going to pick up reading here. Let's see if I can get there. Daniel chapter 9 and verse... Let's just start with 18. Remember Daniel's prayer. Oh my God, incline your ear and hear. Open your eyes and see our desolations and the city which is called by your name. For we do not present our supplications before you because of our righteous deeds, but because of your great mercies. O oh Lord, hear. O oh Lord, forgive. O oh Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake, my God, for your city and your people are called by your name. Now, while I was speaking and praying and confessing my sin and the sin of my people Israel and presenting my supplication before the Lord my God for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning. Stop right there. Who came to explain the vision? And where had he seen him before? In the vision at the beginning, the previous vision. Now already we have a link, right? Daniel's still trying to understand what wasn't understood when he fainted. Fifteen years later, and what do you know? God sends Gabriel back. And this is what Gabriel says. He informed me and talked with me, verse 22, and said, O Daniel, I have now come forth to give you skill to understand. Understand what? At the beginning of your supplications, the commandment came forth, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved, therefore consider the what and understand the what. The vision. What vision? Well, the vision he couldn't understand for the last 15 years. Do you understand how closely Daniel 8 and 9 are tied together? You really shouldn't try to understand one without understanding the other. 
Daniel 9 is the further explanation of Daniel chapter 8. So Daniel's studying and praying about time. Gabriel, who he had seen in the vision at the beginning, is sent is to explain the vision. And what do you know? Does he start talking about the little horn? Does he start talking about the ram or the he-goat? What does he start talking about? Time. And time is what Daniel hadn't understood. Okay, so we've got we've to really get started here because we've got a lot to talk about. We've got a little bit of a late start tonight, so bear with me. The explanation is regarding time. And furthermore, we see that while Daniel 8 gave us the end of the 2300 days, what would happen? Daniel 9 gives us the beginning of the 2300 days. The two are one prophecy that we have to have together as we consider it. Okay, so let's, let's just review what Daniel um, is going to experience. Daniel's going to be shown that the first 70 weeks are for his people. He's going to be shown a summary of events during that time period. He's going to be shown when it would begin and how it would end, all right? So let's just look at how Daniel 9, um, Gabriel explains this to Daniel. Daniel would, would have his mind set at ease. First, we're going to look at how the first 70 weeks are for his people. So we pick up here in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24, and this is what it says. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Now, this word here, determined, determined in the, the Hebrew, it, it really can be, uh, it can be translated divided or cut off. Now, um, I, I decided that I would just illustrate this with you. Um, I have, I'm, I don't speak Hebrew. I don't, I, I, I've taken some Hebrew. I've studied some Hebrew, but I don't, I, I'm not fluent in Hebrew. But I do have an interlinear Bible. I thought I'd share with you this page um, just for your edification. You can see that, see that in an in interlinear Bible, the English is in the columns and, and the text is there in the center. And, of course, the Hebrew is reading from right to left, as Hebrew does. And um, let's just look a little closer here. Here we have, here we have the, uh, the 70 weeks. 70 weeks. This is verse 24, the beginning of 24. 70 weeks are decreed as to uh, your people and as to your holy city to finish the transgression, make of sins, and so forth. This word is called kathak. And uh, this word um, literally um, is translated cut off. That's what it means. Um, divided, cut off, determined isn't a bad translation, but here's just the Strong's. The Strong's is, is called um, to cut off, literally, or figuratively to decree. So the literal translation of this is to cut off. Now, this is the way you have to understand it. Daniel was given a 2,300-year prophecy, right? He didn't understand it at all. He didn't know what it meant. All he knows is it's a long prophecy, because it obviously is not literal time. It's symbolic time, at least if, 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 the, if the beginning was any time in the past or any time in the near future. I mean, he hasn't, he hasn't seen it happening yet. Imagine this rope represents the 2,300-year time prophecy, right? And all the way down there, somewhere down way in the future, Daniel's afraid it's going to be until then that the, that the sanctuary is restored. And if it's until then that the sanctuary is restored, does that mean that the Messiah is not going to be until then? I mean, you understand why it's so troubling to him, right? And Daniel's, his mind is put at ease when he says, uh, Gabriel comes in, he says, look, Daniel, 70 weeks are cut off for your, you and your people. Now, if you were to cut off 70 weeks, what would you cut it off of? Acreage? Would you cut it off of? You'd cut it off of time, right? And it would be cut off of a longer time period. Here we have another link to Daniel chapter 8 and the 2300 days, right? So the, the 2300 days, uh, 70 weeks are set aside, you might say, a portion, determined, um, given to you and your people. This is what the passage is trying to say. Seventy weeks are given to your people. Now, there's going to be a description. Hold on, there's going to be more uh, description during what's, of what's going to happen during those 70 weeks. And we get an overview, a summary of events that will take place during that time period. Let's look at them very quickly. Daniel chapter 9 and verse 24. Seventy weeks are determined for your people. Uh, and for your holy city, to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. So a summary of events that would take place during these 70 weeks. In other words, God is giving the Israelites, remember, Daniel's praying and interceding and, and repenting of his sins, right? And the sins of his people. And, 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 and God's saying to Daniel, look, no, I've not given up on you yet. You've 
I've given another 70 weeks for, for basically for my people to decide whether they're going to follow me or not, right? To stop their rebellion, their sins. I've given them that time. And what else? Am I, what, atonement's going to be made for sins during the 70 weeks. Pretty important point, isn't it? Pretty important point. What else? Everlasting righteousness is going to be established. Imagine, Daniel's afraid the Messiah wouldn't come for another 2,300, but he's saying, no, 70 weeks. Everlasting righteousness will be established. To seal up the vision and prophecy, more than one way we can, we can interpret that, but we're going to have to move on tonight. There's, there's, I think you're going to see, to anoint the most holy, and um, this could be a whole study in itself, but essentially, after Jesus ascended to heaven, the first work that he would do, as in the first work of the earthly sanctuary, was to inaugurate or to anoint the temple in heaven for ministry. Does that make sense? In other words, in the earthly sanctuary, before they did anything, they had an anointing inauguration ceremony. This is, in fact, uh, Daniel is being told, all this is going to take place during these 70 weeks that I've set aside for you and for your people and for your city. Now, we know what's going to happen. We know what's going to happen because we're living 2,000 years later. Did the children of Israel stop their waywardness? These are Jesus' words as he overlooks the city on one of his last entrances. He says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. You know what he says next? See, your house is left to you desolate. Now remember that word. Jesus is using the word. In fact, the word Jesus uses in the Greek is the very same word used right here in Daniel chapter 9 in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, your house is left unto you desolate. Remember, remember what he says here. So we see what's going to happen during these 70 weeks. There's going to be an opportunity for God's people to make an end of their waywardness. They, in fact, won't, but other factors would. I mean, God would be faithful to his time. Now, when would this 70 weeks begin? That's pretty interesting, isn't it? Don't you think we want to know? Because there's no real starting point mentioned of that 2300-day prophecy in Daniel chapter 8. There's an ending event, but no real starting event. How do we know that um, when the 70 weeks are going to begin, these 70 weeks that are apportioned for God's people? Let's look at that. We read in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven and sixty-two weeks. The street shall be built again in the wall, even in troublous times. Now, this is what, this is, this is where it gets really interesting, okay? I wish I had, I should have brought some tape or something you could see. Here's 70 weeks. Maybe I'll make a knot. How's that? Is that fair? Um, here's the end of the 70 weeks. Now you can see that, right? Here's the end of the 70 weeks, and there's, there's a whole nother, whole lot of, of days behind, beyond that. But this is actually going to be subdivided now into several other segments of time. Here we have the wall built again, he says, in seven weeks. And in fact, we have a very interesting time prophecy. This is something we don't have time to get into today. But, but you remember how, how um, Nehemiah came back and finished the reconstruction of Jerusalem in just a short period of time? Well, it actually needed to be done in a short period of time because... The prophecy was about to expire, the seven weeks or 49 years after the decree. And um, then there'd be 62 weeks, so that leads to 79 weeks. That brings us all the way down here to, to near, the, near the end of, of the time given to Daniel and to his people. But we're going to talk first. We've got to talk about the beginning, don't we? I'm getting ahead of myself. I'll get my tail tied in a knot here pretty soon if I'm not careful. So anyway, here we have, here we have this... This uh, illustration now, you might say, of time prophecy. Not to scale, don't worry. Um, you get the idea, all right? Um, anyway, I never was good at art. I'm just, it's not my gift. Okay, so Daniel's told from the decree to, uh, uh, going forth of the command or decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem, 
unto Messiah the Prince. Shall be seven and sixty-two weeks. That's sixty-nine weeks. So all the way from the beginning until this last knot, um, that's going to be until Messiah the Prince. Well, let's start at the beginning. The going forth of the command, what does it say? To restore and build Jerusalem. Now, there are three decrees that are given out. There's a, there's a, there's a decree by Cyrus, of course, that a, allows God's people to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild. There's a decree by Darius, who again, again gives them further authority to rebuild. But there's one decree which actually gave them both the authority to build and restoration as a nation. Turn with me to Ezra chapter 7. I have a whole book in my library called The Chronology of Ezra chapter 7 because the Bible is so clear of the timing of Ezra chapter 7. It's not an accident. He wanted, God wanted us living in 2015 to be able to understand this. So this is, this is, this is way back in the in Old Testament before Psalms, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms. That's how it works. So let's look all the way back in Ezra. You might keep your finger in Daniel chapter 9, because we will be coming back here, I promise. Um, but we're going to go to, back to Ezra chapter 7. And we find in, in verse 25, I'm going to show this on the screen, and then we're going to look at the context. Um, Ezra chapter 7, verse 25, this is what Artaxerxes says, And you, Ezra, according to your God-given wisdom, set magistrates and judges who may judge all the people who are in the region beyond the river, all such as know the laws of whose God? your God, and teach those who do not know them. So this gave Israel not only the right to rebuild, but to be restored as a nation. Do you understand? They're able to exercise their own legal justice system. This is the decree that gave them both restoration as well as rebuilding. And it's the first one. Now, how do we know when this happened? Look with me, Ezra chapter 7, and we're going to see how God made it very clear. Verse 1. Now, after these things, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra the son of Sariah, and son of Azariah, the son of Hilkiah, the son of Shalom, the son of Zadok. Okay, we'll skip down. Um, let's look at verse, verse 6. This Ezra, this Ezra, okay, they wanted to make sure we knew which Ezra he was talking about. This Ezra came up from Babylon. He was a skilled scribe. Skip on down. And notice verse 9. Some of the children of Israel, the priests, the Levites, the singers, the gatekeepers, and the Nithinim came up to Jerusalem in the seventh year of King Artaxerxes. So already we have a date, right? And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. Don't you love the way God made sure these facts were inserted right here? exactly when we needed them. And on the first day of the first month, he began his journey. On the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for God had given him this work to do. And then we find, beginning in verse 11, this is a copy of the letter that King Artaxerxes gave Ezra the priest, the scribe, expert in the words of the commandments of the Lord and his statutes. Uh, I, Artaxerxes, give full authority to not only to rebuild Jerusalem, but to restore this nation as a nation. And this decree by Artaxerxes um, the chronology of Ezra 7 unmistakably places it in the fall of the year 457 B.C. The fall of 457 B.C. So if we look at this, this, uh, this prophecy, this 70-week prophecy, remember that 490 prophetic days would be 490 literal years because a day equals a year in symbolic Bible prophecy. We read that in Ezekiel chapter 4 and verse 6 and Numbers 14.34 and other places. There's a number of lines of reasoning that we can argue that this is the case. And as I mentioned, guess what? Even our futurist friends agree with us historicists in Daniel chapter 9. Because if you don't believe that a day equals a year in Bible prophecy in Daniel chapter 9, you better start looking for a Messiah who came around 455 <laughs> B.C. And frankly, friends, there was no Messiah in 455 B.C. The Messiah would come 483 years later. 70 weeks is 490. Of course, 69 weeks minus 7 makes 483 days or literal years. So if we take our math and we begin doing some math, we say 457 down uh, minus 483. You're going to come up with something besides 27, but don't panic yet, you math whizzes, because between B.C. and A.D., it went from 1 to 1. 
There's no zero year. There, that's the difference between cardinal and ordinal counting numbers, right? When you're born, you're in your first year of life, but you're not one year old. <laughs> and in, in Asia, they count by the, uh, uh, I get them confused which one is which. I think it's the cardinal numbers. And so they say, I'm in my, I'm in my 39th year of life when you really just turned 38, right? So that's, that's the way it works. And that's the way the ancient world counted time. And they were in the first year B.C., and they figure we're in the first year A.D. So there's no zero year. So you have to add one to make 27. That's the way, it, that's the, way the math works out. And um, 483 years after 457 brings us to the fall of 27 A.D. Now, this is pretty exciting. Um, this is pretty exciting. It would begin in 457, and then it would also tell what would happen afterwards. Notice with me what it says would happen. Um, am I getting ahead of myself? Let me just make sure that I'm not missing. I think I'm going to come back to that. Okay, so 483 days takes us down to 27 AD, and um, it talks about how it will end. Notice with me in um, uh, Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26. Um, Daniel chapter 9 and verse 26. I am getting ahead of myself. I've got to stop here right now. I'm just, I'm, I'm getting confused. I'm going to start confusing you. Daniel chapter 9 verse 25. And what did it say? It said, know therefore and understand that from the command, going forth the command to restore and build Jerusalem until, what does it say? Messiah the Prince. Now what does Messiah mean? It's, in, it's the Hebrew, um, well it's the transliteration into English from the Hebrew, for anointed or anoint, the anointed one. It's the same for Christ. Christ is the Greek for the anointed one. Messiah and Christ are synonyms. They mean anointed, the anointed. And uh, we don't have time to turn there. Put it in your notes, okay? Um, Jesus, in Mark chapter 1 and verse 15, after he leaves the baptism and he has 40 days in the wilderness, what does he start preaching? He says, the time is fulfilled. The, God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What time was fulfilled? Well, guess what year Jesus was baptized? The 15th year of Tiberius Caesar. Once again, the Bible makes it very clear um, in, uh, in, its, in, its, in its chronology of the baptism. Jesus was baptized in 27 AD. That's when he was anointed as the Messiah. Now, I want to be very clear. Jesus was God before that. He, the Word became flesh. But he became anointed to do the work of the Messiah at his baptism. And we can prove that in Acts chapter 10 and verse 38. Put that in your notes. Acts chapter 10 and verse 38. Um, Peter's talking about how Jesus anointed, how God anointed Jesus at his baptism. And he went about doing great works. Acts chapter 10 and verse 38. So Jesus, while he was God before, he was the Messiah after his baptism. He was the anointed one. You remember the heavens opened and what was seen? A dove representing what? The Holy Spirit. So Jesus is anointed by the Holy Spirit at his baptism, which takes place in 27 AD, just right on schedule. And so Jesus goes out and he starts preaching. Time is fulfilled. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he was, he, was, he was the fulfillment of this prophecy. We continue on. The prophecy says how it will end after the 62 weeks. It doesn't say exactly when, but well, I'm going to make an argument here tonight. I think it's going to be pretty clear to you as you see. If you read Daniel chapter 9, verse 26, and then you read Daniel chapter 9, verse 27... It is following a typical Hebrew repetitive pattern where you have the first part of Daniel chapter 9 giving a thought, the second part of Daniel, um, first part of 9.26 giving a thought, the second part giving a thought. Parallel to it, the same thought in the beginning of Daniel chapter 9.27 and the same thought as the end of 9.26 in the end of 9.27. You understand what's happening? Look at these two verses with me. After the 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Now stop right there. We're not going to go into that. I want you to read the next verse first. Okay? Daniel chapter 9 verse 26 says, Messiah is going to be cut off, and the people of the princes that's going to come is going to destroy the sanctuary. Daniel chapter 9 27 says, Then he shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, but in the midst, middle of the week he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering... 
And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. Daniel chapter 9, verse 27. Now this is what, 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 what Jesus is going to do. Jesus is going to come for three and a half years to minister as the Messiah, right? He's going to preach the gospel of the kingdom. He's going to tell people. He's going to heal people. He's going to, he's going to train his 12, his 12 disciples. At the, this begins, this, this three and a half years begins at the, at the uh, baptism of Jesus. It ends, guess what? Three and a half years later, we can trace the Passovers in the Gospel of John. Three and a half years later, the spring of 31 AD, Jesus is going to be cut off, not for himself, but for his people. And what happens when he's cut off? When Jesus dies on the cross, when he says, it is finished, he says, into my hands I, I commit, into your hands I commit my spirit. What happened in the temple? Does anyone remember? The veil in the temple was torn from the top to the bottom. That was an unseen divine hand. No human could have, that tapestry was six inches thick. We're not talking about a curtain like we have in our house, friends. My house wouldn't hold up that curtain. Six inches thick. 40, 60 feet high, huge tapestry from the top to the bottom. Impossible to have been done by human hands. In fact, um, the um, historians record that it was right at the time of the evening sacrifice and in fact the, the lamb that was about to be offered actually escaped from the straddled priest and had to be quickly recaptured and, and, and then sacrificed. What did all this mean? It meant that the real lamb had just died. The lamb who takes away the sins of the world. Those lambs weren't able to take away our sins, but the lamb was able to. And after Jesus died on Calvary's tree, friends, there was no point in more lambs dying on Jerusalem's altars. The sacrifices were finished. Jesus, the real sacrifice, had died. That was the end. Now, what would happen? Notice me, that parallel passage. He shall be cut off. In the middle of the week, he causes sacrifice and oblation to cease. The people of that prince that will come will destroy the city. Now, this is where many futurists say that's the Antichrist that's going to come. He's going to have this war over in Jerusalem and so forth. I want us to just look at the context. Is that fair? Don't you think we should look at the context? I think it's really important, friends. I'm just being honest with you. If we look back a few verses to Daniel chapter 9 and verse 25, it says, Know therefore and understand that from the command of the, going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah who? The prince. Oh, but you say, wait a minute. We know Jerusalem's about to be destroyed, but you can't blame that on Jesus. Is he really the prince? Well, that's the context, isn't it? The prince that will come, Messiah the prince, I mean, it's right there. I mean, it's just within a couple verses. It's hard for us to just ignore that. Turn with me. Turn with me. I want you to, I want you to see, well, I want you to see a couple of things. Um, let, me, let me just, let me just, let's just look at this real quickly, a timeline of, of that last week. 27, the baptism of Jesus, 31 AD, um, Jesus is, is cut off not for himself. He causes sacrifices and oblations to cease exactly in the middle. By the way, right on time. Remember the Bible says that Jesus set his face toward Jerusalem? And remember that last Passover, previous Passovers, Jesus had gone quietly to the feast so as not to cause a ruckus? This time he went anything but quietly. He went the most circuitous route, the most public route in the middle of the day where everyone could see he's going to Jerusalem. And when he got there, he allowed them to give him a triumphal entry. Because he knew his time was come. He knew. He knew it was time. This Passover, he had to fulfill this prophecy. And he was going to be the Passover lamb. He knew. And so in the middle of that week, he caused sacrifices and oblation to cease. We'll talk a little bit more about this as we go on. I want you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew. Keep your finger here in Daniel chapter 9. We're almost done. Matthew chapter... Let's start with, I think it's Matthew chapter 21. There's a couple of things that I didn't put in my notes I want to throw in. And um, by the way, it's free of charge. So Matthew chapter 21, this is 
after the triumphal entry, I want you to notice this parable. There was a certain landowner, verse 33. Are you there? Matthew 21, verse 33. There was a certain landowner who, well, I think I still hear pages. We'll, we'll give you some time. Matthew chapter 21, verse 33. Say amen when you're there. Here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it and built a tower, and he leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country. Now when his, the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants and beat one, killed one, stoned another. Again he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then last of all he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. By the way, this is a parable, right? Who's the landowner in the parable? It's God. Who's the son? Jesus. All right? This is what happens. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to the vine dressers? Who's the vine dressers? It was the Jewish nation. What's he going to do? Notice what it says. He says he will destroy those wicked miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their season. Now, if that's not clear enough, I want us to skip down to Daniel uh, to Matthew chapter three. I mean Matthew chapter twenty-three. Uh, let me see here. Where's this one that I'm looking for? Matthew chapter twenty-two. Aha, it's Matthew chapter 22. Another parable, beginning with verse 1. Verse 2, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son and sent out his servants to call those who were invited to the wedding. And when they were not willing to come, again, he sent out other servants saying, tell those who are invited, see, I've prepared my dinner, my oxen, my fatted cattle are killed, and all things are ready, come to the wedding. But they made light of it and went their ways, one to his own farm, one to his business. By the way, who's the, who's the father who's inviting? By the way, he's a king, right? No, is that what it says? Yeah, king, and his son is getting married. What's the son of a king called? Okay, he's getting married. His prince is getting married. And um, the rest, it says, verse 6, seized his servants, treated them spitefully, and killed them. This sounds very similar to the one we read in the last chapter, doesn't it? But when the king heard about it, he was furious, and he sent out his armies, destroyed those murderers, and burned up their city. Now, I'm not here to tell you that, that calamities come from God. We know that the devil is the author of bloodshed and strife and suffering. But I'm, not also, I'm also not going to tell you that there aren't judgments that come from God when God removes his hand. And the parables say that the king sent his armies I want you to consider that the New Testament explanation of the fulfillment of this prophecy is that the armies of Rome were doing the Father's justice according to the New Testament parables. Now, when you go back to Daniel chapter 9, it makes it very clear. It's hard for us to get around that. The people of the prince that shall come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary the end of it shall be with a flood until the war desolations are determined. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. In the middle of the week he shall cause sacrifice and oblation to end. On the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even unto the consummation which is poured out, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Jesus said, your house is left unto you. And he uses this same word in the, in the Greek. The same word as the Septuagint uses right here, your house is left unto you desolate. Now, let me tell you, Jesus was cut off in the middle of the week. Does that mean that he said, that's it? How, much, how many weeks did Daniel's people have? So at this point, they've had 69 and a half. Right? No. Uh, 69, yeah, and a half. Three and a half years, three and a half days left. God would fulfill the whole 70 weeks. Notice with me. Notice with me what Jesus said. 
Luke chapter 24, verse 49. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry in the city of Jerusalem until you are imbued with power from on high. So stay where? The, the, the disciples weren't to go evangelizing the world because the Jews were still God's appointed people. And they were to have whole, the whole 70 weeks to make an end of their sins. Even though they had already crucified the, the scent of God. Can you imagine the mercy and the grace God has? He would still give them three and a half more years to make an end of, of transgressions, to turn from their rebellion. And uh, stay in Jerusalem, still be preaching, teaching to, the, to, to my people. Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to me in, where does it say? Jerusalem, and then in all Judea and Samaria, and then to the end of the world. In fact, three and a half years later, the Jews hadn't turned from their evil ways, from their rebellion, and they confirmed that by the stoning, the first martyr among God's followers, the stoning of Stephen. And Stephen, we read about that in Acts chapter 8 and verse 1. It says, Saul was consenting to his death. At that time, a great persecution arose against the uh, church, which was at Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea uh, and Samaria, except the apostles. And notice what it says in verse 4. Therefore, those who were scattered went everywhere, preaching the word. What happened at the end of the 34 days is uh, 30, 80, 34, the 70 weeks. What happened is general persecution forced the church out of Jerusalem and they went to the rest of the world. And by the way, Paul begins preaching that there is no Jew or Gentile. Those who are Abraham, those who are Christ's are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Why? Because God has now given the Gentiles the blessings of eternal life, and not only that, the opportunity to take the gospel that the Jews failed to take, take it to the world. This is what happened at the end of the 70 weeks. Oh, I don't know about you, friends, but I get excited. Can you tell? I get excited when I see how precisely the prophecies have been fulfilled. I get excited when I see how clearly the New Testament and Jesus' teachings helps us interpret the prophecy of Daniel chapter 9. I get excited because I believe, friends, that if the Bible prophecy could be that accurately fulfilled for the, for the first 70 weeks of the 2300 days, guess what? You can go to the bank on the rest of the 2300-day prophecy. The 1,810 years that we have left, man, there is no more certain time prophecy in all of the Bible because you already have 490 years down payment to show it's going to be fulfilled. Pretty exciting stuff. Amen. It's pretty exciting stuff. We don't have time to go into the rest of what it means for the sanctuary to be filled, um, cleansed the end of the 2300 days. You can go back in the series and listen to that sermon online or, or in your CD or DVD sets. But I believe, friends, we're living in the last days of earth's history. I believe we were living in the time of the judgment. And I believe that those 70 weeks sealed up this vision. There's not any way of going around it. And if it was fulfilled, if it was fulfilled for a day, for a year, for the, last, for the first 490 years, I suspect it kept being fulfilled the same way. There's no indication here. There's nothing in the text that demands that we switch methods of interpretation between the 69th week and the 70th week. God is consistent. God is organized. Are you faithful? Are you, are you thankful that we serve that kind of a God? Amen. Are you thankful we have that kind of prophecy, a sh more sure word of prophecy that we can depend upon? I'm thankful. And tomorrow night, we're going to be looking at the 70 weeks and the rapture. We're going to be looking at a very close look. Um, if it's not found here in the 70 weeks, where is the rapture found? That's what we're going to be looking at. Well, Daniel chapter 9, I think we made it pretty clear, I hope. If you have questions, write them down. I'll do my honest best not for me to answer them, but to find the answers in the Word of God and share them with you. That's what we want. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father in heaven, tonight we just thank you. We thank you that you, we serve an awesome God, a God who is one who knows the future. Lord, you know our futures too. We thank you that we can trust you, even though we don't know what tomorrow holds. We can know who holds tomorrow. And we can trust you with our lives, with our hearts, with our burdens, our cares, our anxieties.
Father, tonight we just thank you for Jesus. We thank you that he came as promised on schedule. He even died on schedule. And he was so gracious that he even fulfilled three and a half more years to his people. Lord, thank you for your prophetic word. Thank you that we can study it. Bless us tonight as we go home. Give us a good night's rest. Help us to be back here tomorrow night to continue studying and understanding more of your word. We want to know you better. We want to know your truth and your word better. For you are the the way, the truth, and the life. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.